Should we begin, or we like to keep chatting? No, this I is like good. Chat. I'll just drink this for a while. I think you're gonna really enjoy my opening. Uh-oh. Are you ready? Yes. <coughs> no. <coughs> Take another another sip to clear my throat here. Okay, ladies. From the date this episode airs, we only have 60 days left until fall, technically. (laughs) 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 And as Moira Rose would say, let us celebrate that. Let's not. Fall is when school starts back. Of course, fall technically begins in late September, but you know full well that August 1st is my official date of fall. So my... Fall? (laughs) (laughs) Pumpkin fall. So my pumpkins and my pumpkin wine glasses will be out long before autumn starts. Yeah, like now. (laughs) So, dear listeners, um, we decided on Terrence's advice to have a adult beverage while we record. Um, One, because it's summer and we're all off work right today right now at this moment we're not we're not recording from work and so we thought we would kind of celebrate that and then also uh terrence suggested that tammy might be heard a little bit better on this podcast if she had um some liquid courage so that's what we're doing here how rude how rude how rude (sighs) she says nothing i figure with only two months left until fall begins that this is as good a time as ever to tell you a ghost story i like ghost stories Not that the season or the time of year has ever dictated when I will tell you a ghost story, but it doesn't hurt that the weather we've been having in Texas feels a little bit more like fall than spring. This weird weather. I hate it. Today's a little warm, but last week was honestly cool, wasn't it? Like, it was cool. Morning, sir. Yeah, it was raining. It was raining today, too. I just want to lay out by the pool. Like, this is not Texas summer. No. No. (laughs) Not you. (laughs) (laughs) I would do that. Okay, so for this episode... We are traveling to the very top of our country, to North Dakota. Oh, okay. What do you guys know? Anything about North Dakota? Have you ever been? Mm, no. South Dakota is where Mount Rushmore is, right? That's correct. Yeah, no, I have not been to North Dakota. I've not been there, no. Let's <laughs> say North Carolina, wrong state. <laughs> so Amanda's on the other side of the country today. <laughs> um, well, I've not been there either, but I have actually been to South Dakota, I've been to Mount Rushmore, and we used to have some friends when I was a kid that lived in a small town in South Dakota, so it's really, really beautiful. Um, But I I was excited to get North Dakota because I have a personal connection to North Dakota. I am, as you guys know, and some of the people listening may not, uh, I'm considering submitting to um, pursue a PhD in about a year, and one of the universities, in fact, my, my favorite current university that I'm looking at is the University of North Dakota. They have a really phenomenal distance communication PhD. So That's awesome. I've okay. been corresponding with a couple of professors, and we're, we're going to talk a little bit about that later. Okay. But there's your frame of reference. That's why that's my personal connection to North Dakota. So you better do well with this episode. So I better not suck. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Everyone's listening. Everyone. <laughs> <laughs> a madly large listenership. Okay, so for the geographically stunted among us, myself included, mm-hmm. North Dakota borders Canada at the top, and South Dakota directly below. It's not truly Midwest, but it does fall right in the middle of the country and therefore is not East Coast or West Coast at all. It's firmly a Northern state, has a lot of rural area and bitterly, bitterly cold winters. Um, So a couple of weeks ago, for those listening, we celebrated our grandfather's 92nd birthday and we went out to eat. And while we were there at dinner, I was talking with Terrence um, and was telling him that I was in the middle of researching this episode and he had a personal story his father used to live in North Dakota, so he knew a little bit about it. And he mentioned that there are a lot of first people living in North Dakota, which I didn't know at the time. 
Um, interestingly, they don't factor into either story that I'm going to tell you today, although um, it's North Dakota was rich with possibilities for urban legends, so I feel like this is a state we could circle back to pretty easily. But I am going to talk just very briefly at the end of this episode, after I do my two stories, we're going to talk a little bit about Native American tribes in North, uh, North Dakota. It's really kind of more of like a piece of color and interest to the story rather than urban legend, but I, I thought it was worth sharing. You look like you had a question. Is that, am I totally off because my geography is one that's terrible? Isn't that where Standing Rock is? Is that in North Dakota? I don't know what Standing Rock is. Either. Let me see your phone real quick. I'm always trying to look things up in the you middle really of, are. of your episodes. <laughs> You can carry on with your... Okay. So while Tammy attempts to look at Amanda's phone, which probably has too many tabs open... (laughs) Yeah, I mean, why is yours always the closest? We are going to get started. (laughs) So today, we are starting with the number one most popular urban legend in North Dakota. If you can't open it... Yeah, Tammy can't open any more pages because Amanda has too much going on on her phone. Heavens. This is not the first time that we've recorded and this same scenario has (laughs) happened. Okay, so if you search North Dakota urban legends, this is the number one urban legend that pops up and that is the story of white lady lane okay nice name huh okay yes <laughs> okay so the legend says lady lane is that a song what are you I doing with that stop making noise penny lane oh that was good song, yeah. i didn't get it but that was good okay mm. so the legend says long ago in the town of walhalla north dakota current population for 2021 is 1058 people So we can imagine how sparsely populated this was about 100 years ago. There was a woman that lived there named Anna Story. And I think that we should start off by celebrating the fact that the woman in an urban legend had a name. Nice. Well done, Anna. I do digress, but it is what we will always (laughs) champion the women in these stories, even when they're the bad guys. (laughs) Okay. Anna's not the bad guy. Oh, okay. Okay. So Anna and her family lived in a small shack near the railroad tracks. Her childhood was happy. She was well-loved, but the family didn't have anything extra. They were kind of just barely getting by. Around this time, there was an old peddler from Syria whose name was Sam Khalil, who rode around the countryside selling items from his wagon. Families depended on his visits for pots, pans, seeds, other household items. Um, I feel like we've kind of seen this archetype in a lot of, like, movies and stories, Mm -hmm. like kind of the desolate frontier family Mm -hmm. and then the the one time a year that they come through. So that's kind of the scenario, only it's true. <clears throat> or this is what the story says. Mm-hmm. So on one of these visits, he spotted Anna, who was about 15 years old at the time. She was incredibly beautiful. And Sam decided he wanted to make her his wife. Now, her mother declined this opportunity. Um, but like I mentioned before, the family was hurting for money and her mother was a very clever woman. So what she did was she told Sam that he could come back when Anna was 16 and he could marry her then. But in the meantime, she was going to be allowed to help herself to any and everything that was in his wagon. Ah. Oh. So he agreed to the terms, and he planned to return in a year claim Anna, and claim Anna for his bride. Anna's mother took all of the items in the wagon and kept them for the family. Dang. A year later, he returned to marry Anna, but her mother refused Sam and told him to leave. Hmm. How rude. It was, it was not terribly honest. Yeah. I gave that. At the same time, not really into selling children. I was going to say, I like it better than pimping out her daughter. Yeah, right, so. right. But he was angry, <laughs> as you can imagine. He was a, a pretty unhappy. He was angry at being manipulated. So he shoved past Anna's mother into the home, and he shot Anna dead in her nightgown. Oh, God. Well, there's that. Yep. So he just turned a corner. Um, Her mother tried to intercept Sam, but then he turned and fired on her, breaking her jaw with the bullet in the process. Goodness. I didn't promise you light and fluffy. Mm, You didn't. Other members of Anna's family tried to help. 
A few of them jumped through the windows and they ran to, to try to get some backup. After having shot both Anna and her mother, Sam then turned the pistol on himself and attempted to take his own life. The pistol was secondhand and had been lying around the wagon, so it was not a quality firearm, and it failed to fire. So Sam threw away the pistol. He was disgusted with himself, but he was determined to see this through, and he drew out a rusty old pocket knife, still determined to end his own life. Ugh. Because it was an old and rusty knife, slitting his throat was more difficult than he anticipated, and he failed in his second attempt to kill himself. <laughs> About this hurts. time, the authorities arrived on the scene. Mm. So he tried. He tried twice to kill himself because he was disgusted at what he had done. He acted out of anger, not making an excuse for it, but mm. he knew immediately he had made a very poor choice, tried to end his own life, was unsuccessful. Sam is a whole mess. Sam's not, not the hero of the story, no. No. Okay, so Sam Khalil was sentenced to life in the state penitentiary in Bismarck, North Dakota, but as we often see, he was released after a short time. He only served 10 years. And at the age of 71, he was released to the custody of relatives in nearby Minnesota. Okay. So with a stroke of fortune, Anna's mother actually lived through this experience and was able to tell the Jeez. tale, although she was permanently disfigured from her broken jaw from the bullet. Anna, unfortunately, on the other hand, did not rest easily. Rumor has it that Anna didn't die immediately, but wandered off into the night towards Teratalt Woods, and her ghost is seen on Halloween every year, Halloween night every year, with her white nightgown billowing out as she walks, searching for peace. Mm. So is that not like the most campfire story I've probably it ever told you guys? Is. You yeah. know what it reminds me of? Um, Thackeray Binks. Mm-hmm. His little sister Emily. I was oh, kind of yeah. getting those vibes. I felt like it was connecting with a memory, but I didn't. Yeah. I didn't place that. That is her billowing like nightgown. Somebody mm -hmm. asked me last night. They were like, "Hey, have you ever seen the movie Hocus Pocus?" And I'm like, "Sit down." <laughs> <laughs> so that's actually only one version of North Dakota's most popular ghost story. Every version agrees that it's the ghost of a young woman in white who wanders up and down this lane. Um, this particular version had the most detail, mm. but I'll go ahead and tell you another version as well. Okay. So another version says that the ghost of White Lady Lane is the spirit of a young woman who became pregnant out of wedlock while living in her parents' extremely religious home, or extremely religious parents' home. The young woman's parents eventually discovered her secret and forced her to marry the baby's father against her will. Yuck. Yuck, indeed. The situation was, as you can imagine, highly stressful. Mm -hmm. And not long after the wedding, the young woman had a miscarriage. Oh. Consumed by her grief, she left the house in the middle of the night, and her absence was discovered in the early morning hours. A search party was quickly assembled. The story goes on to say that the young woman's body was discovered in the early morning hours, hanging in her wedding dress under the narrow bridge within the Teratalt Woods. Heaven's sake. Mm -hmm. was even darker than the first, I wasn't I know. expecting it. I know. So I feel like both of these versions of the story are pretty standard kind of urban legend fodder, yes. right? Where it's like similar pieces, not exactly the same. Um, but in kind of an interesting twist, there is actually an element of truth to one of these versions. A newspaper article was discovered dated November 10th, 1921 in the official newspaper of Ward County, North Dakota. The article is titled Pembrina Peddler Kills Girl and Attempts Suicide. Mm. The article details the events of an arranged marriage gone wrong and the terrible events that followed. Oh, oh dang. Okay. So as we have learned, some of the scariest stories are the That's ones that are real. Yeah. To them. That may be why it had the most detail, because it was the actual because story. Because it actually happened, mm. perhaps. Oof. What was his name, though? Pembrina? Um, well, the... He the article is titled right? Pembrina Peddler, oh. uh, but his name was Sam Khalil. That's so right. I didn't, I didn't go down the rabbit trail yeah. of looking, like, 
perhaps this was a different county where he was right. from. Yeah, that's right. But it's like okay, well, that's eerily similar to kind of this detailed yes, version of, of the most common urban legend. There were a few other ones too. These were kind of the only ones worth sharing because they mm. seemed to have any like real story to them. But that's the one that pops up the most. Okay. <clears throat> so I'm going to tell you one more. Okay. And this next story gives me complete American horror story vibes. Oh, no. Mm-hmm. Y'all know I love some American horror stories. Yeah, it's hard Same not days. to. In the early 1900s, tuberculosis was ravaging the country, and fear and misinformation made people panic. Data was collected, and the disease was studied. In 1909, the North Dakota Anti-Tuberculosis Association was formed and passionately lobbied for the creation of a sanatorium Mm-mm. for the treatment of infected <laughs> North Dakotans. That year, the state legislature set aside $10,000 for the establishment of such an institution. Where do you think we're going with this story? I don't like it. Oh, hold on. The computer's trying to restart, and we don't want that. No, let's not do that just now. Try... Remind me tomorrow. Okay. Sorry to interrupt myself there, but that would have been bad. That would have been terrible. So you're going to tell us about the haunted consumption asylum? So a tuberculosis sanatorium (laughs) was built. Yes, Tammy, that's exactly what I'm about to do. Um, this consumption asylum. Yeah, I don't call it consumption asylum, but I'm kind of mad I didn't. It's <laughs> very clever. <laughs> so this um, this was a sanatorium for the purpose of treating tuberculosis, and it was built in the foothills of the Turtle Mountains of North Dakota, which is a few minutes north of the town of Dunseith. I know that doesn't mean anything to us, but I do like to kind of geographically mm-hmm. position these stories when I can. Construction on the sanatorium was delayed due to a lack of funds, although the state, as I mentioned, um, did set aside $10,000. The final cost of the construction ended up being closer to $50,000. Wow. And this is the early 1900s. I was going to say, when was this? You said 20 uh, something? 21? 1909 is when it began. So, I mean, that's kind of a lot of money for early 1900s. Yeah, it is. The state sanatorium at Dunseeth, as it was called at the time, finally ended up opening in the fall of 1912 after a state infusion of $37,500. So the state set aside money. The project cost too much more. State had to come back. Essentially, I mean, if you do the math, that's basically almost the entire amount was funded by the state. Mm -hmm. So it it is truly a state um, property. State-run facility. Thank you. Interestingly, the name San Haven, as it was eventually known, would not come would not be renamed until January 1923, when the local postmaster, whose name was John Lamont, changed the name of his post office from Montaire to San Haven, inspired by the Latin word sanitas, sanitas, meaning cleanliness or health. It is the same root of sanatorium, meaning the thing or place of cleanliness. I feel like I've heard this, heard of this place before. Oh, really? Like the, yeah, this is sounding familiar. Oh. I, I hadn't. But, like, I think there are, throughout the country, and probably, honestly, throughout the world, lots of these, like, facilities that Uh were created for this purpose, and now, like, obviously, medicine has changed, legislation has changed, the way that we care for people has changed, and some of these are no longer appropriate facilities. Right. Mm -hmm. So, it it makes sense that, like, you may have heard a story before. Well, and I want to say maybe it was on another podcast, even, like, I've heard Mm -hmm. the story of this... Yeah, I mean, I'll let you finish it. The other, I... the other urban legend podcast you listen to? <laughs> what if Tammy was just ripping other episodes and we didn't know? Yeah. She yeah. wouldn't do that. She knows how to research. That would be that's one of the true. two of us. Yeah, that would be one of us. What if What if that's me? It might have been a... <laughs> oh, no. What if, it's what if I just called myself out? <laughs> that's what you've done. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, guys, I'm really busy. I don't know if you know that. So I just get the transcripts of this other podcast and I read it. <laughs> I shouldn't say that. Somebody's going to, like, send us an email tomorrow. <laughs> 
Oh, goodness. I think it might have just been like, and that's why we, we drink, or could be something like that. Yeah, they that do a lot of true crime. Like, I mean, half their show is true crime, so right. they easily could have done the story. Probably better research than mine. <laughs> I have to. Okay. Yeah. So, no, go. No, 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 no. It has nothing to do. It's a show on HBO that I want to know if you watch later. Yes. Ask me offline because if, if it's the one I think, yes, I did. Okay. So we'll circle back. Good deal. Okay. I'll, future Aaron, cut that out. No one cares about HBO. All right. <clears throat> when the hospital began operation, the daily rate to be treated was just $1.50. And it would turn into $7 per day just three years later. So that's a Dang. that's a pretty steep that's rise a in a short yeah. amount of time. That's more than inflation. Yeah. Unlike other TB campuses, Sandhaven allowed by a 1913 state act social organizations like the Freemasons to build cottages on the property. That same act also forbade the sharing of drinking cups. As I'm reading through this, I'm like, why did I include that? It has nothing to do with the rest <laughs> of the story. I hate it. I that. I'm guessing maybe to not spread the tuberculosis. Yeah. No, I mean, I understand why they wouldn't, but I'm like, why did I put that in <laughs> Anyway, it doesn't matter. It's very important. It's okay. ironic that your episode today is about tuberculosis. <laughs> no. No. No, Amanda. Um, let's see. At the time, San Haven was operating... Okay. At the time, San Haven was operating as a satellite hospital for the no- North Dakota Institution for the Feeble-Minded at Grafton which would later become Grafton State School. As the hospital expanded, it gained more autonomy. So before I move on to more statistics, let me circle back because we're going to talk about the Grafton School a little later in this. Um, So to set the scene, it was founded as a tuberculosis hospital, but in the beginning, it wasn't treating a ton of patients, and so it had created this contract with a different hospital. And by feeble-minded, of course, we mean those who are mentally disabled and challenged. They often lived in state homes at the time. So just kind of keep that... It was, it was a multi-purpose so facility is what I'm spending too long telling you. It's the same building is being used as a state school. Yes. As a, okay. Initially, and then it become, anyway. All right, yes. Okay. It kind of ran, ran a dual purpose, and some of these ran alongside each other, and then sometimes it was one, and sometimes it was the other. The timelines yeah. here that I'm going to outline are a little bit confusing, so know that, like, at one time they were sharing space, at one time it was fully one, at one time it was fully the other. Right. Okay. Got it. Because the timelines won't necessarily line up. I pulled from a few sources. Okay, so the year following its opening, um, San Haven only had 12 patients. Okay. This is tuberculosis mm-hmm. only. Um, by 1922, that number would increase to 140. Okay. So it's a pretty steep increase, mm-hmm. both in price to be treated and yeah. in number of patients. Um, but the TB epidemic was growing pretty yeah. dramatically. Yeah. And by the end of the TB endemic, which was in the 1940s, San Haven will have treated, or San Haven treated, thousands of TB patients. And this is in rural North Dakota. I think we need to keep that in mind. Like, we're Mm -hmm. not in the center of Boston. Right. So prior to the invention of antibiotics, which is what kind of brought tuberculosis under control, roughly 50% of TB patients died from the disease. Mm -hmm. A common remedy at the time was to surgically collapse a lung. So you can hardly even begin to imagine the pain and suffering that took place in this Mm. sanitarium. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And while I'm not going to excuse poor medical malpractice, um, I think we should also note that, like, when we look historically at medicine, there were a lot of treatments that at the time they really did believe was cutting edge. And then as research increased, yep. they're like, oh, no, that's just cruel this and unusual. Awful. I'm sure yeah. so many years down the line, things that we do now will seem archaic and ridiculous, too. Absolutely. Hopefully not to that extent. But yeah, I mean, I think we've made some progress that like we don't just necessarily start lobotomizing people. Right. But, right. but you're right. I mean, like as medicine progresses, we yes. look back and we're like, that's an unnecessary way to handle this. Right. 
I like how I thought that this was going to be a short episode, and I'm like already at 20 minutes. Mm. Okay. Even when the tuberculosis... Tuberculosis. <laughs> <laughs> when I start editing this, I'm going to be like, you're so stupid. Okay. <laughs> Even when the tuberculosis an epidemic started to become less seen in the country, so nationwide... This hospital was as busy as ever. As I mentioned before, the nearby North Dakota Institution for the Feeble-Minded, an early name for an establishment that treated the mentally ill, began sending its patients to San Haven as space became available. Mm-hmm. So this is where the timelines don't exactly line up because the first report said that it was like initially sharing space. Mm-hmm. But this report is saying that it was a tuberculosis hospital. And as those right. numbers began to dwindle... Then this other school started yeah. to share space. Either way, I mean, correct me if I'm misunderstanding this, but you're sending people who do not suffer from any sort of contagious disease into the same space as people who suffer from a contagious disease. You're Therefore, correct. Exposing them to illness that they don't need to be exposed to. You're correct. To. And actually, this story doesn't address that point at all. So there's, I, I'm not about to tell you about some horrible story where some poor right. um, mentally disabled person got tuberculosis. I'm, right. I'm not going there. But you can imagine with what we know about cross-contamination, like right. why that would have been a poor choice. Because right. I'm sure that their like hygienic protocols weren't like locking things down. They didn't mm-hmm. know better. Um, let's see. So soon, over 1,300 mentally disabled patients were being treated here. In 1300? 1900. 1300. In 1973, the entire sanitar- sanatorium was taken over by the institution. So at this point, we know that the tuberculosis um, endemic mm-hmm. started to die down in the mm-hmm. 40s. So by the 70s, it's no longer a tuberculosis institution at all. It's purely the mm-hmm. school. Not school, but facility. So San Haven became the subject of controversy, controversy, which included <laughs> alleged understaffing, mistreatment of patients, and overall neglect. That can't really be a surprise for anybody listening. No. There is still a very vocal group, because now we're talking about the 70s. Um, so there's a group of former employees and regional residents who emphatically deny any mistreatment or neglect ever occurred. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, those are the first-hand experiences that we have to go from. We know just kind of historically when you have people who can't advocate for themselves, it's easier for abuse to occur. Mm-hmm. Well, I, and I don't have data on it, but we know that that's, that's possible. And like with anything else, you learn. We've learned so much mm-hmm. since the 70s about mm-hmm. how to deal with everything. I mean, that's right. Just... And, and how to care for those patients and how to right. advocate for them when they can't advocate for themselves. Right. In fact, my next point here is the way that we treat those with mental illnesses today and how we treated them back then is vastly different. Right. What went on behind the doors of the now abandoned and dilapidated buildings may be the stuff of nightmares to many people. The understanding of how to treat non-physical ailments was not clear then, and the methods used would probably be considered barbaric now. And again, I don't have that detail, mm-hmm. <clears throat> but we've told enough stories. I think one of Tammy's most recent episodes New was York, yeah. New York. I wanted to say New York and mm-hmm. I didn't want to be wrong, but I mean, that was, that was a facility for people who were disabled as well. And mm-hmm. like, just, I think, um, I'm going to say historically again, and just sound very repetitive, but I think historically we have sort of dehumanized what we don't understand mm-hmm, because it becomes sure. easier to treat that from an arm's length mm-hmm. and We've learned a lot and we've made some progress. There's still a really long way to go with mental health and mental illness. But um, things that were done in the past are certainly pretty horrifying when you look at under a lens. I'm gathering why you said this reminded you of AHS now. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah, with the sanatorium. (laughs) So even back then, the sanatorium experienced controversy about how the patients were treated. The excessive amount of people there gave way for issues that are very common, such as overcrowding, lack of care. Um, There were 400 employees, and as we mentioned before, 1,300 patients at one point, so they just simply could not keep up. Mm -hmm. Mm. In 1992, 
the sanatorium officially closed its doors. So it's a little crazy to think about. It was just a couple of decades ago. This place was still in operation. 92, is that what you said? 92. So now what I'm going to do is I'm going to read to you a firsthand account of a ghost hunter whose name is Larson, who visited the sanatorium. And this person, for anybody interested, um, this person works for the ghostsofnorthdakota.org, if you're interested. The article that I'm going to read you had a ton of pictures, which clearly doesn't translate to an auditory medium. You have to trust me. This place is super spooky. Like, for mm-hmm. something that closed approximately 30-ish years ago, maybe not even because I'm good at math, um, it looks like it's been abandoned for 100 years. It's mm. just frightening. And this is the AHS vibes. Like, if you ever watched season two of AHS and it's the one about the asylum, those opening scenes where, like, the, the couple goes through oh, the abandoned yeah, asylum, abandoned. that is essentially what this place looks like. Yeah. Well, yeah, similar to stuff that I saw in mm-hmm. New York research. Yes, I'm sure it looked very, very similar, yeah. to be honest. Okay, so I'm going to read his account here. It's not terribly long. In exploring Sand Haven, we felt somewhat on edge due to the atmosphere of the place. There is a spookiness from the extended period of abandonment and natural reclamation of the site. Trees and weeds have gone wild. The formerly beautiful and placid water features have long run dry. Walking paths, which were once wide and smooth, are now rutted and subject to the infiltration of nature. The stillness of a very large complex, uh, sorry, the stillness of a very large complex consisting of dozens of still standing structures is is occasionally interrupted by wind in the trees, doors banging in the breeze, and the haunting chattering of pigeons echoing through the empty hallways. In the children's pavilion, birds crackling two floors above can sound amazingly similar to the voices of children. No, thank you. No. Nope. End quote. End quote. <clears throat> so, no, like, oh, this person is a ghost, but, like, it popped up a lot in the research yeah. as a haunted place. And, mm-hmm. and all of those stories would detail its history without talking about this nurse or this patient. So there were no people, but too many ghost hunters have gone for it to be nothing. Yeah. I mean, sometimes, this is my personal opinion, but sometimes I think just the echoes of pain can leave behind energy memories. So maybe it's not a particular ghost as much as just like the soul of the torture there. Yeah. That kind of haunts Collective the trauma. Thank you. Exactly. There is another story to the sanatorium though, and it is a little political. On Larson's site, on, on Larson's site, so he's the ghost hunter I just mm-hmm. read from, locals argue bitterly in the comments about why the place was shut down and who was responsible for that. So mm. the hospital brought a lot of money into the region, mm-hmm. as you can imagine. Mm-hmm. So when it was shut down, it created a lot of anger and resentment. It's mm-hmm. a lot of jobs. That's a lot of economy, especially in a small town. Mm-hmm. And it was shut down on a mandate from the government. Mm-hmm. So it's haunted by the politics, really, as much as it is like by the people right. who died there. And one more point to make spooky matters a little spookier. Years after the sanatorium closed, a 17-year-old teenager whose name I was unable to find despite (laughs) devoting about two hours to it. Wow. This teenager was killed when he fell down an open elevator shaft in the dark (gasps) while ghost hunting with friends on the property. Oops. And this didn't happen all that long ago. The boy died on October 13th, 2001. No additional details could be located. I spent some time trying to find this this kid because I was like... That's the ghost. That's the story. And this is what I could find this tiny paragraph. So, like, Jeez. it could be part of the legend or, or like, it could be an it's actual really story. That I mean, there is a date. Yeah. Which was reported, but then his name was not reported. Right. Maybe it's because he was He's under a minor. 18. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That could be. But I couldn't get any more. Thanks. I also don't pay for some of those, like, deep, dark websites. <laughs> what? I mean, I'm dedicated <laughs> to this say, podcast. But how dedicated not, are you? But not that dedicated. Yeah. <laughs> 
So today, Sandhaven is completely decrepit and in ruin. A recent visitor described it as having no window unbroken and no wall without graffiti. Yikes. In fact, in mid-2020, part of the sanatorium actually collapsed due to its deteriorating conditions. Oof. So it's in pretty poor condition. Mm. You guys want to go? Nah. Absolutely not. Yeah, you wouldn't do that. No. <laughs> would you do it, Tammy, or no? Too much? Go to the... Mm. Like, I would, but I would go during daylight. I would not go at night trying to find ghosts, but I lo- I do like abandoned facilities. I think... I have like, a hard time yeah. with this this concept in general, because, like, when you think about things that are actually haunted, you're talking about people's true stories there, mm-hmm. if, and if you believe in, like, that spirit existence, and I do lend some, you know, to it. I, I am not... I have a com- conflicted feelings about thrill-seeking some on someone's collective trauma yeah, you know i get that so like i kind of out of respect think i wouldn't but at the same time it, it's not necessarily like oh i'm too scared that'd be too much just mm-hmm. more of a like eh, maybe not mm-hmm. right for me yeah yeah i can drive with that no, absolutely not <laughs> absolutely <laughs> i don't even know why i looked not. at you no. like i knew that answer <laughs> okay so as we wrap up this episode i want to revisit the concept of the first people in north dakota that i mentioned at the yes. top standing rock is between north and south dakota oh, you looked it yeah. up great and it's a large native american reservation because you said you didn't know yeah it was. Mm-hmm. and it's the dakota pipeline that runs through there mm-hmm. it's the big trouble with their water was being contaminated yeah. in that so standing rock oh. is the the area the space that okay. Quite, yeah. Fantastic. Okay. Thank you for so, contributing. <laughs> I was like, I don't want to say this wrong. I knew it was part of the Dakotas, but it's actually both Dakotas. It's mm. on the border. Gotcha. Oh, that's so. interesting. Okay, so I mentioned that I'm hoping to submit a PhD application to the University of North Dakota. Mm-hmm. And in doing that, I'm trying to connect with some professors and build a rapport. I'm still about a year away, mm-hmm. so I'm trying to like create a presence for myself. Um, and in talking with these professors, I'm also trying to learn more about the research areas and make sure that this university would be a good fit with my areas of interest for research. So one of the professors in the department is named Dr. Kolb Fleisch, and I hope I said her name correctly because we genuinely just began some correspondence, like just oh, a few wow. days ago. Mm. Um, and she, she, a lot of her work is in like mentor relationships and interpersonal, but she wrote a scholarly article that I found incredible, and I've read about half of it. It's quite lengthy. Um, but it's about health communications in native populations. Mm-hmm. So I asked her about this. Um, it's a really well done article. I don't know if you guys like to read scholarly articles, but if you do, I really, I, I suggest this one. I feel like it's very relevant, mm-hmm. um, especially in terms of the pandemic. And this, this article is from like 2001. So it predates everything happening mm-hmm. now, but like what we see with our native populations and how they relate to health is, is very, it's fascinating. Um, but she let me know a little bit more about the native populations in North Dakota in our in our correspondence. And I just kind of wanted to share that with you for some like interest piece of the state. Oh, cool. So North Dakota has five tribes of Native Americans and the University of North Dakota is specified as the Indian University of North Dakota. So they've created a partnership. Hmm. And in that partnership, they do outreach to the tribal colleges. So it's kind oh, of a shared experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and she said, in fact, many graduates of University of North Dakota hold leadership positions in the state. So those that have come through the tribal colleges, they finish their degrees at UND, and then they now are in leadership in the state, which I, I think is brilliant. Yeah, that's great. Um, she said, ultimately, Native Americans comprise about 4% of the population in North Dakota. Mm. So these are just things that I didn't know until earlier this week, and I had already wrapped up my research for this. So I was mm. like, this is too timely to not include. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, for sure. And I know that that had nothing to do with urban legends, but it did have to do with North Dakota, and I thought it was wonderful, and it honestly makes me like the university more yeah. that they've mm-hmm. built this partnership. Well, that's the way that you were able to connect to the research, whether the story is related or mm-hmm. not. That's cool. Yeah. 
I like that episode. Thanks. I do not. Yeah, no sanatorium. I like me. it, but I hated half of your story. But I hated the, that that part. Yes, yeah, no, the first story wasn't great. <laughs> that's true. It wasn't cheery, and that's no. why when I was telling Amanda, like at, when we were waiting on lunch, I was like, I really like what I'm going to share with you guys, and then I'm I'm thinking I'm like. These are not happy stories. No. I just really liked the research end of it that, yeah. like, I could share with you at the <laughs> yeah. end, like, kind of ended on a higher note. Sometimes it's like that. Like, you're just so interested. And I don't know, some In the of the research. some of the darker states, too, like, you get, like, I, I may have said this before, but I feel like it's, you get, um, you know how you hear, like, actors that have played a role that get so wrapped up in that role? Sure. Like, you do so, you spend so much time with that information that you're kind of like, oh, it feels actually it really heavy. Yeah. yeah. But then, yeah, like. I will never forget the research that I did for California. I can tell you that, that was rough. Much. That was a rough episode. Yeah. That's when we were still recording in Amanda's closet at her old apartment. That's true. And I remember just being like, mm-mm. Uh-huh. No, I think no. we started doing yoga while Tammy, because we're all crowded on one microphone, and I'm like, my back hurts because I'm laying on this floor, and I'm too old for this, and also this is really stressful. <laughs> this yeah. is a very stressful story. <laughs> stressful. Thanks for listening to Salt Over Your Shoulder, a Redwater production. We appreciate your support. Your download allowed our crazy idea to gain steam and make it into your podcast directories. We couldn't do this without you. If you'd like to continue your support, you can engage with us on social media, on Twitter and Instagram at SaltThePod, or follow us on Facebook at Salt Over Your Shoulder. You can also email us at saltoveryourshoulder at gmail.com. Special thanks to the one and only Andrew York for our awesome graphic. If you'd like to continue your support, please consider giving us a five-star review on your favorite podcast directory. This helps other people find us as well. You can also become one of our patrons at patreon.com saltthepod. See you next time!